Father, thank you that you are a great God and you love us and you are worthy of our singing. You're worthy of our attendance. You're worthy of our giving. You're worthy of our worship, Lord. What would we do without you? Sin is too powerful. We were too far gone. We would just be hopeless. Just being drug along by the world and lust and all the things that come with it, Lord. But you saw fit in your providence and your sovereign grace to save us and change our position from dead, eternally lost people to those who have life and have it abundantly in Christ. And so we're grateful, Lord. Let the gospel resonate in our hearts, Lord. We're prone to wander at times, prone even to leave this gracious God. So cause us, Lord, to fall more deeply in love with you, with your word. We would walk with you in a way that's pleasing, Lord. It'll bring joy to our life and worship to you, Lord. Lord, may our lives be testimonies to the world in these changing times. May the church be a lighthouse of believers shining the glory of Christ through us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible tells us that everything good comes down from the Father above, what, James 1.17, right? Um, so all that he gives us is comes from him, and he gives us parables of stewardship and says things like this, who then is faithful and a sensible steward? So when we study the the stewardship of God and how he entrusts us with things, we realize that all that we have is his. We are managers of those things. And I know some of us would go, I would like to manage a little more. <laughs> uh, or maybe some a little less, whatever the case may be. But we are managers of his things. And to steal is to rob from God because it says all things come from him. So theft is uh, an outright, outright a rejection of God and stealing from God. In our text today, we see a lot of that as we looked at Exodus 22 and 23 today. He's going to deal with that. But for us in the New Testament, we always want to look at this this way. We realize that the gospel motivates us to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, motivates us to, from turning from sin, uh, not living and letting our the the natural tendencies of our sinful lives before salvation want to take over and drag us away. The gospel teaches us to live right, handle the things of God right, handle people, those neighbors, co-workers, fellow church members, handle them right. The gospel drives us to do that. Look, if you're just running on your morals, that'll run out, especially in today's. You'll start getting so angry at what's going on in our world, you will lose your testimony. It is the gospel that keeps us centered and right thinking and in control. And so as we talk about these things, you will see certainly a lot of stuff going on in our world that is parallel to it. But it is the gospel that keeps us running in a very difficult time. This section that we're going to deal with for first part in Exodus 22 deals with the eighth command, thou shalt not steal. And he's going to give us a bunch of case laws of how you should be treating other people, how you should treat properties. We're going to kind of move quickly through them today. And they're going to cover theft and damage and borrowed goods and what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to love one another and take care of these things rightly. 
And we'll see how the, how the scripture doesn't invoke capital punishment in some areas, and in some areas it does. For instance, other cultures would take theft, and, and it's, it's really fun, some of the commentaries that I read, and the little more deeper ones, and take you a long time to work through, they go back to laws that they have found from the Egyptians, from the pre-Canaanites, Canaanite, that they think they got their common law from, and all the stuff is in there, you can read all this. And in most of those cultures, if you stole, you died. It was capital punishment. And, that, and you go, well, maybe that's good. <laughs> but interesting, with God, that's not the same. He, 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 is, he is not a respecter of society because it, it, in a lot of those laws I read that if you stole from a king or someone with money or prominence, you died. You stole from a slave, yeah, it doesn't matter. You might have to make some restitution. But with God, he is no respecter of that social status. And, and he tells us not to steal. He put judges there to help make decisions, not based on class or race or anything else, but to bring equality and justice. And we find that with God. He is a great God of equality and injustice. In a world that's just gone haywire in those areas. Now, you'll remember that last week, we looked at slaves in some of those areas. And God showed us how, through the God's word, how he looked at that. But what I want to remind you is that we as the church, we're subject to God's given authorities. Romans 13, uh, 1 Peter 3, that he set people over us to be subjected to us. And, and our goal as we study the Mosaic law here is, is not to be get angry at what we see not happening. And believe me, I have to spend a lot of hours in this and go, oh, that's not happening. <laughs> no wonder we have all these problems. That, that's not the goal. We're not here as a church to try to fix society and set the record straight of how things should be done. I don't believe God's asking us to do that, although there are a lot of churches trying to do that these days. And, and though, when you think about it, our government was set up on this Judeo-Christian model or principles, we look to these truths not to go try to fix our communities and our societies or our nation right now. We look at them to honor the Lord. That's how the church has to look at these. Do you have a good relationship with your neighbor? Do you honor the Lord through that? Do you care for his things like they're God's things? These are the things he's teaching us so that in this crooked and depraved world, the Bible says, we would be lights in a, in a very difficult place. And I think that's the concern that many pastors are seeing right now with churches is there's so many, quote, believers so upset with what's going on, they are themselves becoming sinful and not a picture of the gospel. And so we study these things not just to try to You know, see how right we are and how wrong the world is. But we study these things that we have a right relationship with the Lord. We seek to build unity in the brotherhood, in, in the church, and how we can be a light in these times. Now, good communities, whether it's Israel in the Sinai Desert, which this is where this is set at, or the church living in today's century, the 21st century, we should live lives that strive to please him. And when we don't, it, it affects the whole body of Christ. So last week, we started looking at the biblical teaching of bondservant. 
And it was important because we said, I made mention that the Bible's under greatly a great attack from people with presuppositions of what they think the Bible means by slavery. And we talked in length about that and we kind of ran out of time, but there's several passages I really wanted to take you to. And one, let me just give these to you just to kind of put a bow on that as we thought about bond slavery. Remember, it's not the way people look at slavery. It was, it was, there was, it was an indentured servant. There was a way out. There was a year of jubilee coming. It was, they were to go out with, with what they needed. There's a whole different view of it. But as I thought, and I ran out of time in my notes and I looked back and I thought, wow, I really wanted to get you to Philippians 2 to show you the servant of servants have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus who became man. I mean, you know the whole passage, the, the whole teaching who, who though God did not think it robbery, did not hold on to, to that position but set it aside, veiled it in a sense and dressed himself in humanity, became man so he could die even the death of a cross. What an ultimate picture of a servant. And then I thought about John 17, 4, and this is his high priestly prayer just the night before his death. He said, I have glorified on you on the earth. And then listen to these phrase. I have accomplished the work which you have given to me. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and offer myself as a ransom for many, the Bible says. Mark 10, 45. And so I just kind of wanted to put a bow on that. Christ teaches us what True servanthood looks like, and that series in Mark, I, I know I named it so many times, the suffering servant of something or other, but I wanted us to get that. That was Christ setting the picture of how to be a servant. And he certainly was the greatest servant of all, and he laid his life down. Now, looking at how many chapters I have left in the Pentateuch, <laughs> which you know that's the five books, <laughs> I'm not going to make it probably through my ministry if I keep teaching verse by verse. So we have to speed up just a bit. The Ten Commandments are, are really simple. They're comprehensive, right? And, and they have these religious and moral principles to us. But, but then we come upon sinful, complex character of humanity, right? He's, he's a complex ball of sin, right? So he's got all kinds of problems. And, and, and what we start to look at here now, verse chapter 21 and chapter 22 and 23, is that we see a nation living in close proximity to one another, They're dealing with their own sin nature. So God gives Moses commands in a form of case laws to help this closely knit society how to live with one another. And again, the complexity of the sinful man means not that killing, um, not killing is not always a murder. So they had to figure that out. So this is what these case laws are about. You might kill somebody in self-defense. So the Bible said that shall not murder, so that somebody has to make that decision, and so he gives them case law to help them understand. He's trying, he's, what he's attempting to do here with Moses writing this, inspired by the Spirit of God, to bridge the gap between the simple absolutes of the Ten Commandments and the complexity of putting them into everyday life. So there's a series of case laws through here, and we won't read every verse here, but they are really unique to read. And you realize how kind God was to this nation to make them so different than the rest of the nation by giving them godly principles to live by. Now, certainly I believe every word was uh, inspired as God moved Moses along to write these things. 
But remember, Moses was in the house or the court, the Bible says the court of Pharaoh for 40 years. He also spent another 40 years out in Midian with his father-in-law, seeing kind of tribal law, how that worked. So he's got 80 years from birth till he comes to to, um, Egypt and then now onto this part that he has seen law. He's seen it in different, different communities, different cultures. He's seen all these things and I think the Lord probably used that to help write and move along these truths for a nation that needed to live in a very godless world and be different than the rest of the nations. So let me see if I can sum up some of these and kind of blow through these verses. You keep, keep your finger on chapter 22. We're going to work our way right down through it really quickly here. Number one, honoring God with our possessions and our neighbors. Got to live close proximity. Got to uh, love God and love your neighbor, right? This is, this is the great command. So look at verses one through four. Here he begins to deal with theft and even breaking and entering. And he deals with stealing livestock and slaughtering them or selling them and, and how to repay. There's five oxen and four sheep for that. There was, there was set rules to if that took place. And then verse 2, if somebody breaks in and you strike them, you're not, you're not accountable for that. If you have no idea who he is, there's a self-defense here, right? He's, that's in chapter 22 verse 2 right here but when you look at verse 3 if it's light you can see who him is Ooh, you might be in trouble because here God is telling us to avoid the senseless killing if possible so I mean I, I love studying these because there's such practicality to these things if somebody comes in literally it says break, breaking in there notice in verse 2 it means digging through it's the word because there, there were you know, right, adobe homes or brick homes of some sort. So they dig through the wall. Will you come digging through the wall at nighttime and this guy strikes you and you die? That's self-defense. But isn't that interesting, verse three, but if the sun rises, oh, now you're gonna go before the judge. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold as a thief. So it might be that, yes, you held him, he was taken before the authorities, and then he has to be sold for his life till he can pay back and make restitution. Um, five through six, this deals with property damages. There's uh, a lot of interesting things here. You let your cows into my field and graze it off so my cows can't eat it, you gotta pay for it. This is very wise. I mean, you know, remember, everything is about agriculture in this world. You know, everybody's a farmer, everybody's a rancher. It's how you survived, you had animals. And so when you didn't keep up your fences and you didn't care for your livestock and you let them in, and believe me, one of the most unneighborly things to do in the ranch world is not take care of your fences. It's a gross offense against your neighbor because that grass growing on his property is what makes money in his cattle. And so if you don't take care of that, then you must pay for it. If a man, verse five, lets a field or a vineyard be grazed bare, then his animal um, and this animal loses so that the grazing of another man's field, he shall make restitution. This is just normal. Six, if a fire breaks out and spreads to the thorn bushes and burns up his stack of hay, a stack of grain here, you're liable. Isn't that common sense? Right now, all kinds of things happen and, and nobody pays for them. People go to jail, but nobody gets, restitution's almost gone in our society now. And so these are fun things to look at here. Seven through 13, there's a bigger lump. I will just kind of move through these quickly. They're dealing with taking care of somebody else's property. 
So if somebody, here's the, the whole idea of it, somebody gives you something to care for that, and you agree, you say, I will take care of that for you, and somebody comes in and steals that, well, that person is going to be liable for double of it, but if it finds out that you were negligent, you gave your word that you would care for whatever it was you watched, and you were negligent on that, and that got stolen or killed or whatever, you are now liable for those things. So you can see the squabbles that would go on in this world of the Israelites here out in the desert, and God was giving them case laws to make sure they understand how to deal with these. Verse 10, if a man gives his neighbor a donkey or a sheep, a ox or a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property and its owner shall accept it and it shall be no restitution. In other words, if you say, look, I did my best I can, but your dog would not stay on the leash and ran away, you're not responsible for that. But, verse 12, but if, but if it was actually stolen him, she should make restitution, meaning if he was part of this whole deal, he's liable for it. There's other things about being torn to pieces. You can read that on your own. 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbors and it is injured and dies while the owner is with it, he shall make full restitution. And if the, if the owner is with it, or is not with it, now verse 15, if he is. So here's the idea of this, very quickly. You borrow your, your, your friend's chainsaw and you break it, you should fix it. If he's there with you running it, well, he's, he's running it. He, he, he should take care of it. See these laws? See how many problems that would go on. 16 through 17 does with seduction um, and the authority of a father over his household. And this is one that you could spend a lot of time on it. But there certainly was sexual sin. And, and here there was not death um, to this man, but he was to pay. And there's a reason why. Because the father, the father is control of this young daughter of his. He has control. He has authority over. And really what the Bible is trying to teach us is whoever did this to her has not only robbed her of her purity, but robbed the father. And it's the father that has paid the restitution for those things. And it surely highlights how God puts authority on the father as the head of the home there. Verses 18 down through 20 deals with other sins that deserve capital punishment. You want to get into sorcery and witchcraft and all those type of things, you're going to die. You want to get into immorality, you're going to die. You can see it right down through these. You want to claim the name of other gods, you're going to die. These were things where God said, this cannot be in the community. This will, this will destroy the unity and harmony of a covenant community. Now look at verses 27, 21 through 27. Here he deals with the disadvantage, the foreigners, and the oppressed. Now, verse 21, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were a stranger in the land of Egypt. This is such a beautiful teaching. Um, We have a nation that you have a way into this nation, and that I think that's very good. And sometimes there are those who get a little wound up about walls and those kind of things, right? Either way, both sides of it. But isn't it fascinating how God reminds the nation of Israel to be careful with those who are foreigners or strangers in the land? I, I, I think this has a real missional aspect to it. I am certainly for legal ways our country is set down to come into our country. 
But one of the things that we found through the years is that many people have come to us that we can't go to. We have a chance to minister to people from around the world right here. Because we do things properly to come in right, we should be mindful of this. And I love verse 21 because he reminds them, look, don't treat someone the way you were treated before. Isn't that hypocritical? These, this nation was uh, in Egypt for 400 years, probably 250 of those years, they were highly oppressed. And he reminds them to not be cruel or oppressive to a stranger in the land. Notice he's, he, God is protecting the weak. Verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Well, James takes this on. James 1.27 says, you want to fulfill the law of Christ, take care of widows and orphans. God is always, always concerned with the least of the brethren. He watches over them. He is a father to the fatherless. He is a husband to the husbandless. He, he does this because he cares for them. And he's warning God's people, do not mistreat them. Do not take advantage of them. They're easily taken advantage of. Look, this is why our deacons regularly check on our widows. We keep eyes on them. Elders as well. Because they're easily taken advantage of at times. And, and so God is protecting these. Notice he goes on down through this next couple of verses. He says, look, I hear them when they cry out. You want to take advantage of somebody who's weaker? Someone who's disadvantaged in some way? And they cry out? He says, I'll hear them and I'll deal with you. Isn't that a wonderful warning? And maybe you fall into that account. Maybe you um, are spouseless or, or you don't have parents or whatever the case may be or maybe you're going through something struggle isn't that wonderful that God thinks of those who are under oppression and he kindles his anger in verse 4 against anyone and he'll bring justice against them goes on verse 25 if you lend money to people to the poor among you you are not to act as creditor you're not a bank it's one thing for a person who's really in need for you to go help them, but it's another one to go, oh, by the way, that's 24 you know, percent points on the, you know, whatever, however they add that up. That's what God wants us to do. If you're going to help somebody, help them. Don't charge them interest here. See, these all kept neighbors loving each other and being a community together, and there's good things to remind us. He goes into coats and borrowing, all that kind of stuff. But look at verse 28 through 31. Here he deals with holy behavior in relationship to God. Now he begins to turn their attention that, yes, these are things that I don't want you to do. These are things I want you to do. This is how we should act in a covenant community. But, but you need to keep God holy. You shall not curse God, verse 28, or curse a ruler of your people. These are things that God loathes. You shall not delay the offering of your harvest and your vineyard. Your firstborn and your sons you shall give to me and you shall do the same with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be, its, uh, it shall be with its mother seven days and eight days you shall give it to me. And then he makes a statement, you shall be holy men to me. So there's a mark of holiness that he wants to drive here. And so Israel was to be a holy people. That was They've been specifically set apart for God, for God's own purposes. And yes, there's many regulations induced here, and there's a constant reminder of these privileges that they have with God, but God wants them to know because he is holy, we should be holy. Now that's exactly what First Peter says, right? 
So now we jump in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, and we realize that God has not changed. He is an unchanging God. He still commands us to be holy people. Now, these laws of ancient Israel, many of them have been annulled through time because there's no real need of some of them, but the people are still required to be holy in the same way. And so when I think about 1 Peter 1, 15 through 18, where he tells us to be holy because God is holy, is one, he has given us our holy position. Remember in DTP, those have been through you, we spent a lot of time speaking about positional holiness. I'm, I'm holy because of God, because I'm placed in Christ. It's my union with Christ. But at the same time, there is a human responsibility after salvation that I desire to be holy because God is holy. So that means when I study the word of God, even the law of God, as I look into that, is it designed to teach me the holiness of God so I live holy? And and look, anytime now it seems like when you teach on this stuff, somebody cries legalism. And yet, when you ask the Bible, how should I live? Ask the Bible. Anybody want to ask the Bible? Ask the Bible how you should live. We are to live holy lives. Now, what we have to figure out is why that's so difficult at times. Why, where have we not submitted our heart and our will to God where sin just wants to reign and take over? And that's where we need to repent. God's showing us our sin. But he demands us to be holy. He says, as, he says in 1 Peter 1.14, let me back up just a little bit, as obedient children, isn't that interesting as he starts that out? That's what the goal was for Israel, to be obedient children. But for us who know grace through Christ alone, through faith alone, he says, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in ignorance. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? You, some people go through life and they go through Christianity and then towards the end of their life, all of a sudden they fall back into super worldly sick sin. And you wonder what happened there. You wondered if anything was a heart change and morals only took them so far. But God says that's not how we're supposed to be. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, who called you out to be separate from the world. That's what we call sanctification, initial sanctification. God sets us apart from the world. He says, you no longer belong to Satan, to his world. I take you from that. You're now my family. That happens at a salvation. But then he, he charges us to use that calling to, to motivate ourselves to be holy. Through his word. I, I love, I mean, it was, it was the doctrine of holiness on a Sunday night that I heard my pastor preaching on that led me to Christ. Because I realized I wasn't holy and I couldn't, get, I couldn't be with God. And so holiness is something that we should think about often. Only, only in the, the motivation of the gospel and understanding our great God who loved us from the foundations of the world and drew us to himself through Jesus Christ alone. Understanding that way is how we come to holiness. When's the last time you asked yourself how holy you are? You know, when we look into the perfect law of God, it reflects. And, and this is what God wants of his people. He wants a people who love him and worship him. Peter's urging, when you look at this text, Peter urges the New Testament believer to strive for holiness. With the same motivation the Old Testament was, in a sense, God's God. God is holy. He's worth our lives. And so God has rewarded us greatly with everything we need in Jesus Christ. And we can chase holiness. Just one more thought in chapter 22 of Exodus. There, 
seems to be a really two characteristics of God's holy people kind of mentioned in here. And, and, and there are two things that fall into it. One is that they're not to be characterized by your materialism. If I got done reading through this study, they go, he does not want us characterized by materialism. He doesn't want us holding on and, and uh, uh, fighting over those things and, and so, so much holding on to this when you're worried about your neighbor and there's no unity because all you are is about material things. And I see that in this text. And material possessions were, were not the first priority, but serving God was the first priority. And so that motivated them to handle their things and other people's things rightly. Other possessions were, were dealt with in a way to help justice and fairness, right? To, you know, if you've done, if something's happened, that there was justice and fairness. But he does not want his people to be hanging on to this materialistic way he, he you know and the great command comes a little later right before they go in the land deuteronomy here there god's uh, moses says god through moses says love me with all your heart your soul your mind and strength love your neighbors yourself that is the greatest command and that's what motivates it and a lot of people get very upset and fight over things and lawsuits go over things because you touched my stuff and there's great battles. It happens in churches. Churches split over these things. Friendships split because of something they held on to so white-knuckled they thought was so important. And they weren't willing to give that up and relationships are ruined. Second, the nation was to give their best as an act of worship to God. Give your firstborn. Give the firstborn of your livestock and your fruit. Give it, give it to God. He, he wanted us... He wants us and desires, and we see this throughout the Bible, to have this desire to give freely, not to hold on. You know what I mean by white knuckle. That's what we do, right? We, we hold on to things that aren't going to go to heaven with us. We're so concerned about materialism that has nothing to do with eternity. And so I think God's after that, he's, he's preparing, what I see in this passage, he's preparing his people to, to give to him at the end of the text, ungrudgingly to, to him to, to see that the care of the nation goes forward, that the disadvantaged are taken care of and, the, and uh, eventually the priesthood and so forth. But that's what we hear in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter 9, 6 through 9, he says, now I say this to you, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And what happens when these people here, as well as today, are so tied up with their things and so much bitter and arguing over estates and all the things that come down that families separate over, they sow very sparingly. And God says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. I mean, it's just no, it's not a hard translation, is it? There's nothing you, you know, well, I don't know what that means. Hang on to your stuff like life depends on it and God will just keep removing it from you or not give you much to care for. Those who love God and are ready to meet needs and just so bountifully to give to the Lord, he rewards them. Verse seven goes on to say, each one who does just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Well, if pastor preached a sermon on giving tonight, better write a check. For God loves a cheerful giver. He, see, he, he's able to look in the heart. And when we study these, of course, these Old Testament case laws, sometimes you go, well, I better, I better start giving. And those guys are giving their firstborn and their ox. Love God and you give. 
And, you, and let me tell you this. When you love God, when you love his son, when you love the gospel, you'll see needs like you never saw before. And you'll be wanting to ask us, how can I meet the need of that individual or that situation or whatever's going on at church? See, the, verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, he, he can meet our needs. And Lord, and, and brothers and sisters, we're going to have to hold on to this as time goes on in our nation here. You have to be reminded that God is sufficient. He'll meet your needs. He'll take you through things. Because I don't think things are going to get all that better here. Joy in our God and Savior creates a joyful giver. I don't know how else to say it. Joy in our God and Savior creates a joyful giver. So Israel needed guidance to how to deal with the sin of coveting and even stealing and living in such close proximity. But the goal was to love God, to desire to be holy like God. I think one of the areas that we see in today's Western church is a real spiritual barrenness. And I, I, I just want to close on this passage on this. That I think the, this materialism has just really hurt American church. It's just really hurt it. And of course now you have the whole prosperity gospel that took birth here and now it's all over the world. You go to the jungles of the Philippines and they're teaching it there. That if, you know, God, God loves you and he wants you to have all this stuff and, and all this false teaching that's gone out. It's been a barrenness. And so we have to be very careful. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, God lets things happen, um, viruses and difficulties that come down through our nations and world to shake us up to go, man, what am I holding on to? Romans, Paul said very clearly, therefore I beg you, I urge you, I plead with you. You can translate the word that way. Brethren, by the mercies of God, <laughs> there's the motivation to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's what he wants. He wants our whole lives, doesn't he? He doesn't want us to be conformed to the world. See, the world's always trying to conform us. They're working at it really hard right now in a lot of different ways. Watch the hearings just a little bit. There's just no way that you can be, have these kind of absolutes. So you need to come over to our side where everybody's right, nobody's wrong. <laughs> and just delude truth. That's the goal, but not us. See, we're not to conform to the world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind right here so that we may prove what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. People ask you all the time, well, you think God wants to do this? Oh, well, what's good? What's it say? What is good, acceptable, and perfect? What do you think that is to God? You answer that question. Sometimes they want you to give an answer that would appease them. Well, find out. Study God's word and know what is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to, you, say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself. That starts with all humility to God. So God desires everything, right? And he wants people to handle their stuff right. Second thought. We're in trouble. Striving for justice and love in a pagan world. Striving for justice and love in a pagan world. This section, when we get into chapter 23 of the Book of Covenant, deals with the themes of what constitutes proper behavior in the realm of justice. And so this section carries as a sense of personal responsibility towards others and even your enemies. Now look at verses one through three. I'll just read a couple of these and we'll kind of move through them like we did last time. You shall not bear a false witness. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malice witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil. 
nor shall you testify, falsely is the idea, in a, in a dispute so as to turn aside after the multitude in order to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. Now, it's pretty clear language. This deals with the destructive nature of, of language. Thou shalt not bear bear false witness the ninth command here. God desires that his people strive to protect the good name of others and not destroy reputations needlessly. Um, verse two is just, I mean, we have just seen this on display in our world. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil. So that's the, that's the reverse of peer pressure, isn't it? Not thinking on your own or not trusting truth and, and just going with whatever is so destructive to a nation and God's warning of that. And what's going to happen with this nation? Well, it looks like we're going with Baal now with this new king. By the way, we're burning our babies to him at noon. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's go. It, and they just follow the masses. The masses just follow along. Go, how can this nation just fall apart like this? Because they just followed the masses into wickedness. So God doesn't want that for his covenant people. Look at verses four and five. If you meet your enemy or enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Not in our dying age. They shoot the donkey. That's the way it is, right? You leave your keys in the car, it's gone. <laughs> five, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, how many of us can deal with this? Who hates you, lying helplessly under its load. Your truck has blown all four tires, <laughs> or, or their truck. You shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it. I mean, it's your enemy. This is your sworn enemy. See, God deals with things so differently than the world does. And look, in the ancient world, from, from the fall, they were taught just by their own desire to hate enemies. This is how different this nation was and, and than all of the rest of the world. You, you grow up hating the Hittites and the Jezebites and all, I mean, because they're, they're you're, why? Well, I don't know, we just hate them, you know? And God says, no, you, even if your enemy, you see your enemy and he's, he needs help, you're to reach out to him. You know, this was taught all the way to win. Well, here, of course, to the nation, but till Jesus came and said, love your enemies in Matthew 4, 5, 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, it's a whole different view of things. This is, this is what the covenant community of God does. We heap coals upon our enemies because we're nice to them. We give them cool water at times. Verses 6 to 8, you see that this deals with righteous conduct in the court if you read these verses, you'll see that there's justice for the rich or the poor. You, there's, there's not kind of any persuasion. You saw a few verses back where he said, don't let the poor persuade you. Isn't that interesting? Pretty soon the poor can do anything. One of the problems we dealt with out in San Francisco was the homeless problem out there. And certainly there was a few, a handful of people that just lose their homes or whatever it may be. But those people are always working hard. You can tell the difference in them. It's not very hard to find people who are destitute and need help. But what has happened is all the laws have set to help them. <laughs> and, and, and it's so bad, it's so wrong. In fact, it's the worst thing you can do for them. 
Equal justice is what God wants. Right scales, you'll later he'll get in, um, we're gonna keep moving through these fast. I mean, he's abhorred at scales that aren't right. That's not the way God does. We need to conduct ourselves honorably with him always watching. Notice he talks about false charges, bringing false charges forward. Oh my goodness, did we not see that in some of the hearings? How wicked that is and how much God despised that. Let that never be said of us. Look, we have a church discipline situation coming up just after I'm done here. And we work very, very hard because we never want to charge somebody with something they didn't do. So there's a tremendous amount of counseling, work, pleading, begging, hoping people will turn from their sin because the last thing we want to do is charge them for something they haven't done. And we don't come to you until we finally know for sure that this is a fact. So we, we have to be very careful brothers and sisters. This is where gossip in the church hurts bad when people get talking about something and don't know the facts. Gossip's probably one of the great stains of the American church or probably any church. Always talking about somebody. May we watch our lips. May we be careful about how we speak. False charges can destroy people and, and God knew it. No bribes. Bribes ruin justice, don't they? Verse 9, he goes back, be kind to strangers, remember Egypt. He goes right back to that thing. Verse 10 and 10 through 19, now you begin to see laws pertaining to the gatherings and the festivals that was going to happen. When you look at 10 through 13, here he deals with a Sabbath rest for fields, daily work, personal speech, even the animals. He wants them to be different than the world. Do you think that the Canaanites gave their animal time off? <laughs> Or their slaves time off. There was no hope. If you're a Canaanite slave, you're hosed. There's no year of jubilee. There's no release. There's no gaining money to, to buy your wife's release to hope that in the seventh year I'm gonna be free and my debts now have been paid because I had to become a dungeon servant to pay off these things. There's none of that hope. So God deals with him so differently. And, and, and a lot of people don't know their Bible. All their presuppositions will come at you and say, oh God, they're just like the rest. Or, no, no, they're not at all. God laid down immeasurable difference between Israel and the rest of the nations. 14 through 19 deals with three annual feasts. Um, just real quickly, there's a lot given to this, but it's, it's uh, uh, everything was measured by festivals because they're all part of an agricultural year, right? So the Feast of Unleavened Bread would have been in spring. You have your barley, your first ones to go is your barley feast uh, harvest there. And then you have a Feast of Harvest, which would have been early summer, and this would have been the wheat harvest that would have come. We've seen that in, um, in the plagues where certain, certain crops were hit and then others got hit by other things. And then the Feast of Gathering, and, and this is my favorite one, and it's in the fall, and it has to do with a lot of orchards and vineyards, and everything's kind of coming home. Everything's fat and ready for the winter. Um, this is a great time. And it was a time for thanksgiving. He wanted the nation to thank God and acknowledge him for what he has given them. And he provides an opportunity to show the goodness and blessing he had put on his people. I, I, I always say, I think sometimes we overlook Thanksgiving as Christians. It's probably, well, it is my favorite personal or family holiday, um, but I love it. Eat a lot and be thankful. I mean, what more do you want? Uh, it's, it's a tremendous time to say, God, we're so grateful. It's one of the reasons that Pastor Bobby and us kind of sat out and said, hey, how can we bring our church together? We've been through all this COVID stuff and separate it and, you know, don't touch anybody or even look at anybody uh, or whatever's causing it now. Um, 
so we want to bring the church together. Let's have a fall. Let's have a fall. What is it called? No, it's not festival. Fellowship. Bobby's laughing at me because I can't get over it. Um, it's a fall fellowship. We're going to come together, invite your friends, invite somebody who doesn't know the Lord, let them come see the church, be together and be thankful. In fact, I'm going to start a series, I think somewhere around November 15th, on Thanksgiving and gratitude. And look at some of the great texts in Scripture to remind ourselves to be full of gratitude. God loves this cheerful heart. A cheerful heart is cheerful because he's full of gratitude or she's thankful. And that's what we should be. Verse 17, you can see again how God desires time with the heads of home. He tells three times a year he wants the men with him. And then verse 19, I gotta, at the end of 19, I just got to handle this because somebody will ask me before we get out of the building. Um, what about verse 19? And you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. Well, this was in the Canaanite way of worship. It was a very pagan thing. Their gods, they worshiped at harvest time too. And so what they did is they milked a mother goat and drained her of all her milk, boiled that milk and threw the baby in it as a worship to their gods. What he's telling us <laughs> through all of this kind of crazy literature here that looks a little bit, that God is concerned with ruthlessness and cruelty, cruelness, <laughs> and tells his nation do not have any part of that. And the fact that Israel were commanded not to follow such pagan practices reinforces that he had a unique lifestyle for them that was different than the rest of the world. Christians, young, old, in between, wherever you are, is your life different than the world? If the world was to put you on trial, would they see you very differently and not be happy with you? If you were asked to be a Supreme Court justice, what would they ask you? How much grilling and how many days would they have to work out all the things that you believe? Would there be a difference in you? And to think more importantly, we're never going to be on those kind of stands, but we do have a neighborhood, we do have co-workers, we do have people that we live in. And I, and I think one of the things I get asked by questions by a lot of young people is, you know, should, can I have this or can I do this to my body or can I do that? When I ask all those questions. Well, most of those things are dealt with in the Bible because that's the way the pagans lived. And there's things that God wants us to be different about. And, and, and again, there's a, there's a conviction, a personal conviction that you need to have, and I tell you not sin against your conscience in certain issues, that there's not a black and white verse written on it. But I would ask you this, are you different than the rest of the world? Or do you look like them, eat like them, drink like them, live like them in every aspect? See, God wants us to be different. And, I, and we find such joy in that. I hope you enjoy being different. For the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, follow the Lord into a pagan land. These last few verses here, I just wanted to touch on, they're very, very powerful. Verses 20 through verse 33 deals with Israel entering and occupying the land. And it focuses on the Lord's provision for them and the blessing that follows that, right? Look at verse 20 with me. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place where, uh, which I have prepared. So, here we have this angel of the Lord. He's represented all throughout the Pentateuch in different ways. He's appeared to Abraham and different, different things. And, and most of good Bible interpreters, we believe him to be a temporary pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity. 
And he's there to bring encouragement and direction to God's people. And we see him do this throughout the scriptures before he comes to earth. And he is the one who goes before his people and protects them. And I got thinking about this. Well, isn't that exactly what Jesus said? Look, disciples, John chapter 14, I'm leaving. What? Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And when I've got that done, I'm going to lead you right into it. Isn't that interesting? What a parallel there of our Lord Jesus Christ doing the same thing. And most likely, I believe it was probably him. Look at verse 21. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgressions since my name is in him. Now, the people are to give the same respect and obedience to the angel of the Lord as they do Yahweh here. And the route to this covenant blessing is by obedience to the Lord and the one whom he sent to represent him. And notice that if you rebel against the angel of the Lord, you're rebelling against God. See the equality that's there? And notice he has the power to forgive or not. And he says, since my name is in him, his name, he represents me. He's, he's everything I am. He's the exact representation. He holds the character and nature of God. And so, look, we believe this more, we weigh more than just an angel. Those wonderful and powerful those beings are. This must be the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And so, there's synonymous words here with the God in this angel. Verse 22. But if you obey his voice and do all that I say, isn't that interesting? Obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adverse, and, uh, adversely to your uh, adversaries. So here, not obeying the angel of the Lord was equal to not obeying God, but listening to the angel of the Lord was equal to listening to God. Verse 23, notice the clear link between the angel and I will. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Preserites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jesuits, and I will completely destroy them. So there's, a, so there's the parallel that clearly ties them together. Verse 24, you shall not worship their gods nor serve them. Now you're coming into the land. Do not, not uh, nor do according to their deeds. Boil a goat and all those other things. Um, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. So here God says, look, you're gonna enter this land of these pagan people you're, you're my people, don't fall into the temptation and adopt their idolatrous lifestyle. Say, so why, why has River been so heavy on discipleship? Because we know the world's trying to disciple you. <laughs> That's why we work so hard at it. Not only the first command out of Lord, risen, our Lord Jesus risen Savior says, make disciples, but, but the world's trying to disciple you. Do you know that? They're trying to disciple you through the TV and through all the things that are going on. The world's constantly trying to disciple you. God says, no, don't be like them. In fact, break away. Break that stuff. Do not be part of that. There should be no gods before God. They are to be destroyed. None of the behavior that comes with worshiping false gods should be part of God's people, even today. So some people ask me questions, personal questions, why I don't do this or don't do that, and they want to know what I, I'm doing it. And it's just simple. It's not that I don't desire those things. My flesh desires certain things, but I don't 
I want to honor my God, the one who saved me. And it's not that it's easy, but, but, but then it's not that hard. <laughs> when you really love him, you say, Lord, I don't want to look like the Canaanites and say I'm a Christianite. Is he worthy? We sing that song. Is he worthy of that? And, and what's coming out down the pipe now is, is what are the Christians going to do? What, how are they going to stand in this age? When soon, the narrow Christianity that we believe, which is extremely narrow, one gate, one way, through Christ alone, no other way, it's not going to go over well. Verse 25 and 26. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your, your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst, and there shall be no, more, no, no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the numbers of your days. The Lord demands an exclusive loyalty and worship to his people. With such worship came basic essential things in life, right? You know, you don't sleep around and live poorly you probably don't get a lot of diseases. In fact, I can promise you, you won't. <laughs> so all the ads that are out there running around, you don't have to worry about those things. Telling kids, young girls, they have to have certain shots by certain times. Why? Because they think everybody else is going to live like them. Honor God. Give him exclusive loyalty and worship. That's what he wants. And he says, look, I'll even meet your, your basic needs like food, water. I'll give you healthy babies and long life. And look, that's not some prosperity gospel that they teach down the street. That's not what he's talking about. Live for God because you love him. I don't know how many times I've used this phrase with myself and many people, give God something to bless. Give God something to bless. Oh, pastor, we want God to bless our marriage. What are you giving him to bless? Disunity, lack of headship, lack of submission, arguing. What do you want him to bless? Give them something to bless. Live a life, Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 12. Live a life, we're looking at this as staff this week. Live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, full of gratitude and growing in knowledge. Verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw them into confusion and all the people among whom you come and I will make all of your enemies turn their back to you. <laughs> I, I gotta, gotta keep moving here, but listen. I know sometimes we can think the worst when we see things happening. If it does come to the worst, is God not going to take us through it? Have we lost our minds, Christians? That we have a God who splits oceans and seas and feeds people from heaven and does unbelievable things and loves us and sent his son to die for us. And will he not take us through suffering, even persecution, and even death would he not take us through it? He's fighting for us. I love, we sing a song there, that he's fighting for us. Look at this. I'm gonna put my terror. <laughs> the, the word means that he would give a fear, a dread into them that overwhelms the inhabitants so much that they'll, they will not want to fight against his people. And that's what happened. Read, read um, Joshua, man. They're just, okay, let's go get them. Oh no, let's run. <laughs> and that's what they do. And they're like, well, that wasn't much of a battle. Fun to read when they actually were walking with God. Sometimes when people might see you coming, when you love the Lord and you love his word, they get a, fin they get a sense of either joy or fear. 
That's what happens when you're known for loving the Lord. They even want to talk to you and embrace you because, boy, I want to talk to you about this verse and I'm so excited about what I've read and studied. Or they're like, uh, he's coming, I'm going to go down the other way. Verse 28, I will send hornets ahead of you so that it will drive them out, drive out the Hittites and Canaanites and the Hivitites and the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. Well, you know what happens when hornets, they're a little aggressive, stinging insect, and they make you what? Run. <laughs> and if you haven't run in years, get into the hornets and you'll run. And that's what God does. And so I'm giving you all this to encourage you that God has not abandoned his church. He has not abandoned us in these times of, of changing times and where evil seems to be getting the best, it seems like. He's there and he's going to fight for us. 29 through 30, and I will drive them out. I will not drive them out in a single year. That the land would become desolate and the beasts of the field would become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become, uh, become fruitful and take possession of the land. Look at the kindness of God. I'll gradually bring you into this land, but do it in such a way that you'll have the farms already ready for you, the fields already for you, houses built. Remember he tells them, I gave you houses you didn't build, fields you didn't plant. And he did that little bit little. Didn't run the whole group out the, at the right moment because by the time this little nation fills all that, everything's just, it's gone, right? Everything goes back to a sinful state and weeds and all that grow. He did it little bit. Isn't that kind of God? Look how he meets their needs. Verse 31, I will fix your boundaries from the Red Sea of the, uh, of the Philistines. They were the sea people, they were called, from the wilderness of the river Euphrates and, and for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and with their gods. So it wasn't until we get to the days of David and Solomon did they finally get to almost the extent of those borders. But he said, as you're doing this, do not compromise. Do not compromise. And I think you and I, when we lose our joy and go through our problems, is somewhere along the line we compromised. There's only one group that they made a covenant with, with you remember the Gibbonites, and they tricked, they tricked them um, in Joshua's nine, and, but they made them uh, servants of theirs for the rest of their life. In verse 33, they will not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So this verse explains why no covenant with the Canaanites the Canaanites represented all the kind of nations um, because you'll fall into sin. Last thought here, because we're late here. Pluralism in the narrow gate. I just want to talk about this really quickly because this is where I think we find some real application. It's not, it, it's, it's not possible to make all the parallels to everything in here, but I, I want to land on this one just for a moment. I promise I'll quit. Western civilization has developed a tolerance for pluralism. And you say, well, well what is that? It, Pluralism is the idea that it's promoting a view that no one religion can claim superiority. This was not true of our nation. This was what we were founded in. There's a twisting of those laws now. But basically, they, what the world is doing, particularly even now America is doing, is this pluralism is taking over. And, and what stands against pluralism is the narrow way of the biblical view of salvation. It stands in the way of it. Pluralism says, well, isn't he, aren't we all God's children? That's pluralism. It's, no, we're not. 
It is those God chose before the foundations of the world, drew to himself through, the, through Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit, who made us, adopted us as children, chosen, elect children of God. We don't know who that is. We don't know what God did there, how he did all that, but he drew us to himself, and that is the only way to the, to the Father is through the Son. There is no other way. And so one of the things that we see in Exodus is we see God warning of pluralism. Do not adapt those things. And when we study the nation of Israel, when they adapted those, they gave up on God. Because God does not share his glory with what? Another. <laughs> and so pluralism moving, the, 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 the apostles, boy, you gotta love them. Acts chapter four, standing in front of the killers of Christ. What do they say? Well, there's no other salvation and no one else, for there is only one name under heaven which you can be saved. <laughs> These are the guys that killed Christ. He goes, yeah, sorry, you can't get to God. You can't get the kingdom of God that you think you're getting by keeping the Sabbath and all these other things that you're doing. You're not gonna see him. There's only one way. It's exclusivism, isn't it? The world hates it. And so the modern mindset is against this. But this is what we preach, Right? The only way to God is through Jesus Christ alone, period. And if we accept anything else, we're heretics. <laughs> and that's what the world needs, and that's why we hold to it. We'll be beat, jailed. If life goes on, we'll go through all these things to hold to the exclusivity of only one way to the Father through Jesus Christ. But that's why we meet, brothers and sisters. So we encourage each other. And so that we put our faith and a God who doesn't fail. And so it reminds us he's worth living for and one to not give up on his one-way message. Let's pray and then if you, I'm late, so grab, grab your kids, please, and, and then members only here in the next 10 minutes. Father, thank you for this time together. There's so much truth here that is very relevant to us today. These are Old Testament truths, but they're from a God who does not change. You know how to help us live in community. I pray first as we've thought about things that we would be kind to one another in here. If we have something against each other, we would go and fix that. Maybe we need help. Maybe we need someone to sit down with us to help us get things right. Lord, don't let us live in disunity because you hate disunity. Lord, may we love our neighbors and care for them with the goal of being motivated by the gospel and the goal to share the gospel. May we even love our enemies, Lord. That's hard. But you tell us over and over to love our enemies. So, Lord, when we watch things that we don't agree with and we feel ourselves getting angry, cause us to know we're stepping out of line with him with you, Lord. And so, Lord, there's so many practical things. But Father, help us to be exclusively yours. You are a jealous God. You don't want to share us with anyone else. It is the great plan of the almighty God from the foundations of the world to draw us through Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way except through Christ. That's our message. That's why we're saved. And that's what the world needs, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd be faithful in here. Lord, thank you for this core that's here tonight. Continue to grow us, Lord. Help us be discipled, know you better. 
trust each other and love each other, Lord, and so that you would use this church for a great lighthouse of truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.